Nehemiah chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 through 18 this morning. Some of you might remember this news story from 2007. Uh, A New York subway uh, was on 137th Street, and there's a guy named uh, Wesley Autry. And he was standing waiting for the subway train with his two young daughters. And there was a young man about 20 years old who had a seizure right in front of him and fell into the pathway of the subway train that was approaching. Um, Instead of covering the eyes of his daughter without hesitating, he jumps into uh, the path of the train, grabs the young man, and they both roll into this small patch of this opening, and he lays on top of the young man while a couple of the train cars pass over them, uh, and they lived. No injuries. And after they brought them out, and and the news got wind of this, they, they asked him, why did you risk your life for a stranger? And he said, I saw someone who needed help, and I just did what, what I felt was right. And as I was thinking of that story that I was reading of this week, uh, I was reminded of Nehemiah, uh, that uh, God uses his people to accomplish his plans in the most unexpected ways. This man had no idea that morning that he would jump in the path of a train and save a man's life. Much like when we read this account of the nation of Israel, that the nation of Israel had forgotten God's word that he would restore his people if they turned to him. And God used Nehemiah, uh, just a, an ordinary man, uh, to bring about God's plans to do an amazing work that only God could do. And so we're reminded as we look at chapter 2 this morning of this scriptural truth that good plans are God's plans that will be accomplished by the good hand of God. Good plans are God's plans that will be accomplished by the good hand of God. Would you read with me in Nehemiah chapter 2 verses 1 through 18. It says, In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad, when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy." And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sinbalath the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I rose in the night, and I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, 
You see the trouble we are in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. The glorious word of God. Again, Father, we ask that you would bless the reading and the preaching of the word. Teach us anew and help us to apply it in Jesus' name. Amen. You could read the book of Nehemiah and just see it as some historical account of what God was doing uh, during uh, that time. Uh, but there's so many great, wonderful, glorious truths that apply to us today. And that's how we see all of Scripture. It is God's Word, not just for a moment in time, but for all of time and for all of God's people that we would learn and grow uh, and that we would apply it in our lives. If you look at verses 1 through 8, we see that he is praying and he is planning. At least that's what's been going on in the last four months when we were in the text of chapter 1 last week, we were saw that he was in the month of Kislev, which would have been the month of December. And now this is four months later, the month of, of Nisan or Nisan, like the car, if you want to say, uh, in the book, in the month of April. And you think, well, what has he been doing for four months? As he's working as the cupbearer to the king, what has he actually been doing? Well, last we read, he was weeping, he was mourning, he was fasting, and he was praying because he had heard that the uh, city of Jerusalem uh, had been in ruins and had been in ruins for 150 years and he was struck with grief over the city of God uh, being in that state. But we also see in this chapter that during those four months, God gave Nehemiah a very clear plan to rebuild the city. You see this when he begins to uh, talk to the people and as we see the chapters that follow, that while he prayed... Uh, and while he fasted, God gave him a plan, a plan that was so great and so huge that uh, only God could accomplish it. This week, as I was praying for each of you, I was wondering, what has the Lord been putting upon your hearts this week as we were challenged last week to pray for the lost people in the city of Missoula? What has God been putting upon your hearts as you've thought about those who are walking and living in darkness who are the people that God has brought to your mind? What are the things that you've thought about where you work and where you go to school? What God has laid upon you, the plans that He's working, that He's going to use you in. Uh, to me, there's an excitement there because I'm one who likes to plan. I like to order. I like to see, here's the big picture. Here's the vision at the end. Let's go and get it. And so I've been praying for you this week that the Lord has been laying on your heart uh, his plans uh, for his church and how he builds his church. Let us not forget, though, verse 11 of chapter 1. Look back just a few verses. Verse 11, it says, Oh, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayers of your servants who delight to fear your name. And here it is. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Last week when we looked at prayer, one of the things we drew our attention to was praying specifically. How have you been praying specifically this week? Have you been praying by name for people that you know need Christ? Have you been praying for this church specifically? Have you been praying for the other churches in Missoula and in this state and in this country? Have you been praying for the believers and the missionaries in countries around the world? How have you been praying specifically? Because when you get to chapter 2, we should not be surprised the favor that Nehemiah has with the king because he prayed that specifically in chapter 1, verse 11. And so again, I ask you, what are you praying for? Is it just a general throw it up in the prayer, Lord, just bless my day? Or is it, Lord, I pray for your blessing in this way, and when I go to this place, and when I see these people, do you pray specifically? Because we see in Scripture there is a call for us to pray in that manner. Well, look here in verse 2. He asks him uh, as he comes in to uh, check the wine uh, for the king to make sure it's poison. The king says, why are you so sad? Literally, he says, why is your face so bad? 
Now, I don't recommend you saying that to a family member or someone when they come into church. Why is your face so bad? Are you sad this morning? Um, You're not sick, are you, he says. Uh, He says, this is only sadness of the heart. He realizes, even though Nehemiah, being in his presence, you, you come and you serve the king with joy. You don't come in with some questionable type of attitude because, wait, that guy's supposed to test everything to make sure it's poison. Is he doing something uh, to try to get after me here? Or the, the, the joyfulness that, that you would want to be and have before the king to have favor, and here Nehemiah is just down. He's been grieving for four months. He's been literally weeping over the city being torn down. And again, are we grieved over the state of the world Are we grieved over the state of our country, the state of Montana, the city of Missoula? Are we grieved over the fact that there are millions of people, billions of people in this world who have no regard for God? They have no fear before the Lord God Almighty. Do we grieve and weep over those who are lost? Do we grieve and weep over the body of Christ around the world that is facing persecution? Do we grieve over the body of Christ being tempted to waver in the truth and those some doing? Do we grieve over these things? We should. In verse 3, here's Nehemiah's response. He said to the king, Let the king live forever. Well, that's a great way to respond to the king. Let the king live forever. He says, why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? He says, why shouldn't I be sad? My hometown is in ruins. It's been in ruins for 150 years. The walls have not been rebuilt. Nothing has come to restore the people. And when you read uh, Scripture, about the description of Jerusalem and Solomon's temple and its splendor and its glory. One of the Psalms I was reading this week, Psalm 48, it says, verses 1 through 3, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king, Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. Again, when you read of the city of Jerusalem and the splendor and the glory of the temple and the glory of God that came down upon the temple when the temple was dedicated to the Lord, uh, there was no other city in the world like this. There was no other place in the world where God's people had gathered to worship the Lord and imagine the, 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 the walls torn down and burnt, the gates burnt to the ground. A, a, a Ezra and, and the people of God making a smaller type of temple to restore worship, but nothing like before. And this is what he grieved over. Why should I not be sad? But we see that God gave Nehemiah a plan in those four months because in that moment he realized the providence of God, the king asking a question, what do you want me to do? And so he asks an outrageous request. He has this far-fetched request before the king because what he asked the king to do is reverse something that the king had already put in paper. If you go back and you read in Ezra chapter 4, you can see where the people, after rebuilding this temple, began to rebuild the city. And this same king, because of the people in the province there that did not like the people of God, said, King, you need to stop this rebuilding because they're going to rebuild it and they're going to come against you. And so King Artaxerxes, he makes a command. He writes it down, his signet ring, and he says, Let no one rebuild Jerusalem And now you have Nehemiah saying, King, here's what the Lord wants us to do. I want to go and I want to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. He has an outrageous request. King, will you reverse your orders? And when the king said to me, verse 4, what are you requesting? He says before he answered, so I prayed to the God of heaven. Now again, 
You'll see 13, 14 times in the book of Nehemiah, he stops and prays. He stops and prays. He stops and prays because next week we'll see this. The enemy's constantly coming against this work. And the people of Israel are scared and fearful and want to take their eyes off of rebuilding what God has declared for them to do. And he constantly is praying and reminding them of the good hand of my God that is with us. And here in that moment, have you ever done that before? You've been in the midst of something, and you didn't pray out loud, but in your heart, you just, before you answered or made a decision, it's like, Lord, help me. I need some wisdom right now. Would you give me your words? We don't have an account here, but we don't have a, a description that Nehemiah, when the king asked him, what do you do, that he got down on his knees or laid on the floor and just started praying. It doesn't have, like, he took all this time, it just says, so I prayed to the Lord, and then he answered him. Made me think of Peter. In Matthew chapter 14, when Peter says to Jesus, seeing Jesus on the water, Jesus, tell me to come to you on the water. He says, all right, Peter, come. And he gets out and he's walking on the water and he sees these waves that the wind is causing. And what happens to Peter? He starts to sink and he says the most simplest prayer, Lord, save me. And Jesus grabs him by the hand and pulls him up and they get in the boat. Sometimes, like Nehemiah stopping and praying in the moment, you and I need to be in that same type of trust and reliance on the Lord. Lord, save me. Help me. Give me the words before we open our mouth. In verse 5, he says, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. He says, this is the vision, a rebuilt city of Jerusalem, a restored nation of the people of God. King, if you find favor with me, would you send me, allow me to do that work? And as we saw last week, his grieving over the state of the city is not just some physical city, but it's a picture of God's people uh, that should be restored, but they were scattered because of their idolatry. And this picture of the glory of God departing from the people of God. This is what Nehemiah wants. is not just some walled city, not just with some temple in it, but God's people gathering to worship. We'll see this in Nehemiah if you haven't already read it, where they open the, the law and they stand for half the day and they read it and they've got choirs singing and they've got people playing trumpets and they're, they're praising the Lord, this picture of the glory of God restored. This is the vision and the plan that he has that God has laid upon his heart. Verse 6, and it says, And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone? He doesn't uh, start to reason with him. He just goes, Okay, well, how long will you be gone? You're like, Wait, what? what? King, you, you're letting him go? It's like, Well, remember verse 11, chapter 1. He prayed for favor with the king. The king doesn't send him through a whole bunch of tests to go, Okay, let's check all this thing. Let's make sure you're good with this. He just says, How long will you be gone? And when will you return? It said, so it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. When you get farther into Nehemiah, we see that he's there and he's the governor for 12 years. I don't know if he gave him a 12-year time plan, but he gave a time that pleased the king and says, yeah, uh, definitely go. Uh, the king responds as if he's already granted this request. When will you get back? Tell me your timeline. Tell me your plans and you see how God gives detailed plans to his people. In verse 7 and 8, uh, Nehemiah wasn't taken off guard like he prays. The king's like, oh, when you... He's like, no, he just goes right. He goes, I'm going to be gone this time. Here's what we're going to do. And by the way, verse 7, it says, I need a letter from you to take because I'm going to run into these governors who already know that we're not supposed to rebuild this. And so the king's like, okay, here's some letters to the governors. Oh, and in verse 8, can you give me a letter to uh, your, your chief guy at the lumber mill? Uh, Asaph, you know, we're, we're going to need uh, lumber. And he's detailed, not just for the walls and for the gates, but also he has plans to even build his own house. He's like, all right, here are your letters. The king did everything that Nehemiah requested. This is the king who's ruling over the world at that time. And his cupbearer simply asks, and the king says, yeah, go. 
Here's letters. There's the lumber. Oh, by the way, I'm going to send some of my military officers with you. I'm also going to send some of my cavalry with you to take you all the way to Jerusalem. Do you see how he, when he says, the good hand of my Lord is with me? Can you say that today to the people that you speak of who are walking in darkness? How the good hand of the Lord has been behind you? Who has blessed you as you've followed Him? As you've set out to do your plans for whatever it be. School, work, family. Because you've sought God's truth in His Word. And the Holy Spirit has directed you on how those decisions, just as Levi read to us from the book of Proverbs, that's filled with wisdom that you could say, I sought the wisdom of God in His truths, and the good hand of the Lord has been with me, and this is what He's done in my life, and this is what He's doing right now. And yes, I'm in this trouble, and I'm dealing with this, but the good hand of God has been with me. Can you say that this morning? Can you trust in the Lord in these things because you have witnessed and you have seen how the Holy Spirit has directed you in the ways of God's plans? Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. We read here in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, God's plan for His people. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. It says, Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Before God said, let there be light, before the earth was created, before he, he created Adam, and he even gave them life, God set a plan before they sinned in the garden. I mean, you think about how mighty and awesome God is, God knowing all things, that he set out a plan before sin even happened in Genesis 3 to save his people from, his, from their sins through his son, Jesus Christ. You don't make that story up. No human made that story up and just wrote it in some books for people to believe and go, let's make a religion out of it. These are the plans of God Almighty who knew everything, the, the ends and the beginnings, because he's always existed and always will, and therefore he made the perfect plan to save his people. And so God receives all the glory because he's glorious. And so when you think of this and you read in Ephesians chapter 1 um, here, God's plan of redemption was set before you were ever born. This is the good news. This is what we pray that we take into the dark world. That people must know that God loves so much His people that He would give His Son Jesus, that He would uh, send His Son Jesus to die. God adding humanity to Himself. Fully God, fully man, living a perfect life. He did not have to go to the cross. Jesus chose to do so, being obedient to the Father. Jesus Christ laid down his life for his sheep. And there at the cross where he was nailed, he suffered and he died. And the suffering was not just the physical nails and the beatings and all those things physically, but he bore your sin. All of your sin that you've committed against the Lord God Almighty, He bore. And upon that, He bore the wrath of God the Father for you and for me. And therefore, all we can say is thank you, Jesus. His blood that was shed is sufficient to cleanse you of your sins, to forgive you of your sins, that through faith in Jesus Christ, that not only He died for you in your place for your sins, that He shed His blood that you could be forgiven, but Jesus Christ rose from death to life. He is alive. He is ruling and reigning in heaven, and your faith in Him saves you. That is God's plan. He set out before He ever said, let there be light. And that's not the end of the plan. Because Jesus says, I'm coming back. And Jesus Christ will return in the clouds. There will be a judgment day. And all of his people he will take with him into heaven, in the new heavens and new earth, for eternity. No more sin. A new glorified body. 
and we will be with him forever, just as we are singing about the glory of God. That is the plan of God. Not one person invented that, wrote it down, and so we must know, church, that if God has all the great uh, wisdom and knowledge, the best plans, his plans are always better than our own. And therefore, we must be like Nehemiah and pray and ask the Lord, what are your plans for my life? What are your plans for this church? What are your plans for the people of God in this world? And may we follow that. Because Jesus is the one who builds his church, so he has the best plans for his church. Two passages of scriptures that I remind you of. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Acts chapter 1, uh, verse 8. Do we have that on the screen? Acts chapter 1, verse 8. I want people to see that. There we go. But you will see power when who? The Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Do you know that before Jesus ascended to heaven, he said to the believers, my plan is this, you are going. I'm leaving, I'm going to return, but you are going to be a witness to tell them that I died, I shed my blood for them, and I rose again, and I'm returning. Matthew 28 is the next passage. Go, therefore, and make disciples of what? All nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Church, that is for you and for me if you're a follower of Christ. That's Jesus' plan for the church. It's very simple. After faith in Christ, we continue to declare the gospel. As people believe in Christ, we disciple them in the truths of God's word, and we continue to do it again. You know what I'm going to do next Sunday? I'm going to show up next Sunday, Lord willing, and I'm going to preach to you the gospel. I'm going to preach to you from the book of Nehemiah because it's the Word of God that edifies the believers. And it's the gospel that's in the Word of God that saves those living in darkness. And so every single Sunday morning, I pray that if you're in here and you're not a believer, you hear the gospel and you believe and you're saved. And every single Sunday morning, for all of you who are in faith, I pray every single Sunday morning, and I beg and ask the Lord, Lord, would you please teach us your truths this morning, that we would live and abide by them, that we wouldn't just throw them to the side and say, well, that's, that's his opinion on that. No, it has nothing to do with my opinion. This is the living word of God. And I pray every single Sunday and every throughout the week that you and I would see this is God's word, that we would believe it, and we would abide by it, and we would not let our opinions of it get in the way. That's what I pray for. That's what God's called us to do. And yeah, there's a lot of things within the New Testament we can read about how the church should function. Every single one of you, including myself, if you're a believer, should be serving in this church using your gifts in some way. And some of you don't know what that is. And so you need to pray, and God would give you the plan that here's how I'm going to serve. Here's how I'm going to be using my gifts among the body of Christ and be obedient to that. Proverbs 16, verse 3 says, Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. Let's look at the second point, verses 9 through 16, inspecting and evaluating. In verses 9 through 10, you see that um, these letters that were given to Nehemiah, he runs into the governors, he shows them these things, the army, cavalry, and officers go with him, and they enter into Jerusalem. Again, I believe it's about a thousand miles away. Again, weeks of journeying, most likely, and he gets there. It says that uh, three days before he does an inspecting, I don't know, maybe he's tired, maybe he's resting, Maybe he's praying, and before he goes out and inspects uh, the city. Uh, but we see that in verses, um, verse 11, it says, So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Verse 12, Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. He didn't come into town with the king's military and say, all right, everyone gather up in the circle in the middle there. We're going to just go over the plans that God has given me. No, he doesn't do that. 
He doesn't throw out this plan prematurely. He is going to inspect and find out. He's heard about how the ruin is, but he needs to see it. And, and, and this is the way that God confirms his plans, that as he lays the plans for our lives upon us according to his will and the word, that we inspect the things that are happening, that we look at what's going on in our life, we go, oh, that's, that's a confirmation here of what God's word tells me. I can proceed forward in that. And so in verses 12 through 15, he goes out at nighttime. He inspects the southern and the eastern walls of the city. It lists the different gates and the places that he went to. Uh, but again, he doesn't tell any of the leaders. Uh, he says, what my God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem. And so through verse 15, as he inspects these places, he now can see, even at nighttime, how bad the walls and the gates are ruined. How much work is actually going to be needed? Because if you remember last week when we looked at Ezra, uh, just for a brief moment, there's just over 49,000 people that have come back that are in the city. 49,000 people who lived there uh, that worked on the temple and now have no idea that Nehemiah is going to call every single one of them to take part on the vision to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. A number of years ago, I worked at uh, Downey Regional Hospital in Southern California. And one of the jobs that I had on the maintenance crew was you would get uh, whatever work order or uh, your manager would call and say, hey, we just got this call from this wing. Go over there and check this room. You were supposed to go and see or inspect what the problem was. Uh, here, the word in, when he inspected the wall means to scrutin scrutinize by viewing or watching. And so I would go into whatever room, uh, whatever place I was uh, told to go check out and go see what is the actual problem. And as I went into the places, brand new to the job, not knowing anything about it, I would go in and I would find things that were broken or things that were done here. Uh, I remember one of the first uh, plumbing things I went to was they said, go check this room. There's a leak underneath that sink. Well, I go into there and I check and the sink uh, piping underneath is duct taped. I was like, it's duct taped? We got a whole wall of all the plumbing stuff in our in our department what's going on here and i was just like i just kind of confused i got a call and then i said well hey guys i gotta shut this off we gotta fix this well go over to the lab because they've got a problem over there well i go over to the lab they're trying to test blood and different things and all these things and they're tripping over this uh, piece of siding that was duct taped and it did every time we come out and it's like well you know I'm telling the manager, I got some duct tape on this too. And I'm like, I, and, and then they said, well, hey, before you come back and get parts to fix that stuff, you need to go by and check this one uh, ice machine. So I go up on one of the floors and one of the nurses says, there's something wrong with this. And so I take the cover off. The inside and interior of the ice machine was covered in black mold. And I was like, wait, I asked the nurse, are you guys giving ice to patients? Like, Yeah. I covered it up, and I'm like, don't use this. So I go back to uh, the office, and again, this is the first, this is the second day of work there on the job. And so I go and tell uh, the manager, I said, well, here's the things that are going. He goes, what? about? He goes with me, and what had happened was in all these things, other people who had gone to do the work just didn't do the work. They were lazy. The pipe that needed to be unscrewed and replaced was duct taped. And so that held for a while until it leaked. The piece of siding that was tripping the people in the lab, carrying vials of blood and things like this, it should have been removed and replaced. And the ice machine, I don't know other than the inspections must not have been done. It was horrible. And I was like telling my wife, don't ever let me be in this hospital. <laughs> but I also made some enemies. Didn't realize there were people cheating the system. But simply going and looking and physically touching something. This is the picture of what Nehemiah is doing. And so as he inspects the walls, as he sees the walls, this is a great uh, example for you and I, is are we inspecting the walls of our heart? Are we inspecting how, our, how we are living and walking and acting with Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior? If you are here and you're not a follower of Christ, today is a day of inspection and evaluation for you. You need to look at your heart. 
You need to know that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. You need to understand that if you die because of your sin, that you will be separated from the Lord. You'll be cast into hell forever, and the wrath of God will be upon you. Today is inspection day. And for all of you who are followers of Christ, today is the day that you would look at Nehemiah, how he inspected the walls, and you would inspect your heart, your spiritual life. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus says this about inspecting and planning. In verse 28, For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it, Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. This is what Nehemiah is doing. Do I have enough lumber? Do I have enough people? Can we do this actually as the plan that God has given me to do? And he's like, Yes, we can, which he presents to the people. Because what Nehemiah saw those three nights that he inspected, or those ni- whatever nights he inspected, was a big big mess. Is there a big, big mess in your life? Is there a big, big mess in our churches? Is there a huge mess among the believers in this world? We must inspect by the Word of God, not by our opinions, not by culture, not by that church does that, so we're going to do this, these people are doing that. No, what does God's Word plainly say? We love God's Word because we love Jesus. And therefore, we inspect, why are we doing what we are doing? Why do we have these ministries? Or why do we sing these songs? Why do we have these Bible studies starting this week? Why do we give here? Why do we do these things? Well, every one of those should be answered by the Word of God. And if there is not a Word of God that answers that one, we may go, oh, wait, if, wait, then you know what? this should be set to the side. This should be something that maybe we shouldn't be uh, spending our time in here because here's what God's Word is clear on. The hearts of the people of Israel that led to the destruction of Jerusalem landed upon their hearts and where they were spiritually as a nation Because what God had warned the nation of Israel throughout the Old Testament, if you worship another God, actually he says, when you worship false gods, I will do this. He told them hundreds of years before they went into captivity, before uh, uh, Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, before the Assyrians, he told them, you will worship other gods. And I will bring the enemy upon you. And I will cast you into uh, 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 oppression. And you will be uh, imprisoned. But when you turn back to me, I will restore you. And what you see in the book of Nehemiah is God restoring his people as he promised. And it's a picture of God fulfilling his promise to restore our hearts for all who believe in Jesus Christ. Because all of us, before Christ in our life, are like the ruined walls of Jerusalem and the gates that are burned with fire and have no regard for the Lord God Almighty. And as the Holy Spirit moves upon our hearts and the gospel is declared to us and we are given the gift of faith, Ephesians chapter 1 and 2, we believe and God restores our hearts to how it was set to be before the fall because of Jesus Christ. And it's a wonderful thing that God does. If you read um, in Joshua this week, you read chapter 7 of Joshua, um, there is the account where Uh, The nation of Israel were given the vision and the plan of God. Go into the promised land uh, and take it all. And they went into Jericho, and then they go up against the city of Ai, and against the city of Ai, there are some men who are slaughtered, and Joshua falls on his face and says, Lord, why did you bring us here? Your plan is flawed. You know, you told us to come this way, and what happens? And here's what he says. The Lord said to Joshua in verse 10, Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Verse 11. 
Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things they have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. They brought out what was stolen. The man and his family were stoned. And they continued on. God calls his church today to get rid of the sin in the camp, to hold to the word of God, to eliminate anything and everything which he has not declared in Scripture. And he says, when you do those things, then I will be with you. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The demons know that God is real. They believe. And therefore, we must be a people who fear God and not be a people who go after things that are not in His Word just because it's our opinion. Let's look at verses 17 through 18. Verses 17 through 18. Rising and working. Rising and working. Uh, I used to coach uh, JV high school sports, um, basketball and volleyball, and you would want to get people fired up. Those of you who are play, have played sports before when team sports, you get everyone ready. And we had this tunnel that would go from the locker rooms into the gym, and we had all these routines, and people are jumping up and down and yelling. And I remember when I was playing football, you just start smacking people in the helmet, and you shoving people around, getting all fired up, and you see this, and they run out on the field through the the, the, the paper and rip it apart and all these things or onto the court for basketball and, and volleyball, these things that you would want to get people fired up as a coach. You would be like, okay, what am I going to tell the team about this? Now I know that that team's better, but I'm going to get them so fired up that we go out and take the win. You get all fired up, they're all screaming and yelling, and then you get to the halftime and you're like, oh, we're down by so much. And everyone in the room is beat up. And they are all just on their faces like, Coach, what are you thinking? And it's like, I got to get them riled up. I got to get the, you know, I'm going to get a box. I'm going to stand on the box. And I'm going to cheer for those people. And I'm going to get them all fired up. And hopefully they'll go out in the second half, win the game. Well, this is like what Nehemiah is doing in one sense. He's rallying the troops now. Because in verse 17, he gathers the people. And then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. He says, come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. Wow. That's all he said. 50,000 people are there. Like, rebuild this? I mean, again, if you think about it, they've been living there. They know how big the stones are. They know how much lumber is needed to rebuild these glorious gates. They tried to rebuild the temple but could not rebuild it to the splendor that Solomon had built it. They know the problem. And he says, here's the problem. They're like, duh, we know the walls are down. He says, well, here's the vision. The rebuilt walls, restored no longer being a shame or derision. The enemy won't come in and tell us what to do anymore. This is what he declares to them. And so he said, here's the plan. We're going to rebuild all the gates and the walls. And there's always a skeptical person in the back, like, man, I don't know, Nehemiah, he's crazy over there. There's no way that we can do what they did when they tore this apart. And what he was showing them when he talks about the good hand of my God being with me, he was pictured this picture of reconciliation with God, restoration of the people of God, and rebuilding this place for his people. Again, this reconciliation that God promised would happen if they turned back to him. Just as Jesus was a sacrifice for us, that through his work, that we could be reconciled to Jesus. And he gives them this picture of the restoration of the walls and the worship and the relationship with God. 
And this is that picture again when Jesus died, the curtain was torn in two so that you, through faith in Christ, could enter into the place, the Holy of Holies, Jesus Christ residing in your heart. And therefore, you don't worship God at a distance, but you worship Him in spirit and in truth, in His presence. And then this rebuilding. Everyone's got to work. You're going to read ahead of all these names of people. Everyone's going to work. The young and the old, they're all going to do work on this great city. They're all going to contribute to that. And as I was reading ahead and reading these things, I was like, wow, this is a lot like this picture of sanctification. God is doing a work among His people. He's building us daily in Christ through His Word that we would be at His work sharing the gospel, serving one another, praying for one another in the body of Christ. This is this picture of what he lays out for the nation of Israel and what we have for the church for us. In verse 18, and he told them, circle this, highlight this, underline this. He says, and I told them of the hand of my God that has been upon me for good. He says, you know what? All I just told you, the reason why we're going to do it is because of God. We're going to do this because God has placed it in my heart to tell you this. He's going to fulfill it. And when you read ahead, they rebuild the walls, the gates, and everything, even as the enemy comes against them, even as people begin to doubt in 52 days. And not only do they do that, but you see they gather in the corporate worship of God, and it is glorious. If you doubt and think that God can't do certain things, then you're not trusting Him. Now, I'll say this. There are things that we want God to do which are not according to His will, and therefore He's not going to do that because that's not His plan. But there are things that as we pray and seek the Lord as He lays out His plans before us, we trust in Him because He can do the work, not us. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of of the Lord our God. In verse 18, what did the people do? You got a Bible in front of you, hopefully. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 18, what did the people say? What did they do? All right, you're mumbling again. For those who are new, we have interactions at time, and I ask you to say it loudly. A lot of times the answer is Jesus, but this one's a little bit different. So verse 18, what did the people do? Let us rise up and build. That's God working upon their hearts. That's God directing them to do what he set out for them. And it's amazing what happens in the chapters to follow. Have you ever felt like, that's such a big thing, God. There's no way that's ever going to happen. Have you given up praying for something that God put on your heart about the city of Missoula or this church or the nation or the people in this world because you thought it was too great and too big and you'd never see it in your lifetime? We must not, try, must not doubt. We must trust the Lord. Read this this week. Here's part of the description. I was picturing some music in the background. Missoula, Montana is a vibrant, diverse city that offers a variety of religious congregations. There are churches representing a wide range of beliefs from Protestant denominations, such as Baptist, Presbyterian, Lutheran churches, to Roman Catholic and Unitarian Universalist denominations. There are also non-denominational congregations and temples for Hinduism and Buddhism, and it goes on. No matter what your faith or spiritual practice may be, there is likely to be an option for you in Missoula. It says these organizations come together to create an atmosphere where everyone is welcome and accepted regardless of background or belief system. And as I read that, I was like, oh, woe is us. We live in a city that wants people to come here and be religious. We live in a city that says if you just believe whatever you're okay. If you're religious, we've got something for you in this city. So I did some more research, and I just read some of the census from July 1st, 2020 to July 1st, 2022 of this city. The population number, 76,955 people. 29.1% of the people in Missoula are religious people. That's over 22,000 people are religious here in the city. 
But I was staggered when, again, I read 70.9% of the people in Missoula are, have no religious affiliation at all. Over 54,561 people plus have no religion. And I was thinking about uh, the Grizz Stadium and thinking about how many people can be seated in there. It's around 26,000 people. You could fill it about twice, church. See the crowds? Do you see the lost people in the city? Do you see the people living in darkness and they need Jesus? Our hearts should be weighed this morning with grief over the fact that over 54,000 people, that if they died today, die in their sins and go to hell for eternity. God has placed you in this city, in this church for such a time as this to declare the gospel for anyone that would come into this place, to declare the gospel to this neighborhood. The fact that God would place us here across the street from all these apartments and all these uh, houses here in town, that's no mistake. There's no just, oh, chance roll of the dice. God placed this church here so that the people living in darkness would hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit would open their eyes and they would be saved all for the glory of God. That's His plan, not the people's plan that are in this room. And so we must pray that God would move us and direct us to trust Him in His plans. That we would pray like we have never prayed before. That if you are here and you are lost, that today is the day of salvation. And Jesus says, believe in me. Confess your sins. I will save you. And He does all the work. And for every believer in this room, God is not done working in your life. It is not time to sit back and wait for Christ's return or to wait for something else. You are to serve. You are to use your gifts. You are to declare the good news. And you cannot do it on your own power. You need the Holy Spirit of God to fill you up today and to lead you in that direction. And as the corporate body of Christ, we will stand for Jesus Christ. Would you stand with me as we pray right now? Father, we come before you seeking your plans for the people in this room. And Father, in just a minute, we're going to sing this song, Great is Thy Faithfulness. We know from your words that you are faithful and that you are true. We know that you have had the plan of all plans to save us from our sins. And Father, we pray and ask in this moment that you would save those walking in darkness. You would be upon the hearts of those who need to be saved. That today would be the day of salvation. Would you do that work in their hearts? Give them the gift of faith to believe in you. And, 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 and we praise you for saving them. Father, we ask for us who have faith in you, that you would build us up in our faith today. We pray and ask that in this moment, the plans that you've put upon our hearts for your church here and around the globe would be moved by your Spirit. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would move our hearts with such great trust in your word that our faith would stand in you. Father, we lay our plans before you. And we ask that you would fulfill all that you set out to do. We give you praise and glory. In Jesus' name.